Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us for this part of the hour, Darsh Meshru and our host, Tom Dupree. Oh, I guess that's my cue. So this is Tom Petty. And in my, I've thought about this a lot. The main influence on Tom Petty is Bob Dylan. And I, 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 that's all I'm going to say is because... And then they ended up in a little group together towards the Traveling Wilburys. But that's, Tom Petty is sort of a pop version of of Bob Dylan. I'll just leave it at that. Um, The, um, okay, it's just me and Adarsh today, which is how I like it, actually. No, I like it every, every way, but this is good. So we've had a market that's been bouncing around. And it's been bouncing mainly lower. And this is Friday. We are doing this late on Friday. And right now the Dow is down, um, I don't know. Uh, with just with about 30 minutes left. Yeah, 250 points. Now, one of the things that we are attempting attempting to corral around here is this idea of Where's inflation going to be? Where are interest rates going to be? What is the real cost of money? Because then you can price equities. And I think the market itself is dealing with that. Some people say the stock market's been overly expensive. Some say the bond market's been overly expensive. The bond market is a lot less expensive today than it was, I don't know, two years ago when the yield on the 10-year treasury was under 1%, today it's over 3%. So uh, we've we've had a big backup in rates. Of course, we've had inflation kind of reveal its head and and come out. And uh, we don't know if inflation is going to stay as high as it has, but indicators that we're looking at would indicate that it's actually going to moderate quite a bit. If it does, then you got to look at rates. You got to look at uh, the stock market and say, well, you know, we may be 
a lot closer uh, to a, a, a inflection point where the market just begins to decide for itself regardless of what the Fed does. I think the market, nobody will say this, but they all realize, and even Jay Powell admits, <laughs> you know, we're, we're playing catch-up. So that means the Fed really isn't a factor. We're not looking at a Ben Bernanke or an Alan Greenspan type of Fed where they really kind of were on top of things a lot more. This guy's not been on top of things. And, um, or at least it's kind of like Jasper chasing Nelly. Um, these are two dogs we have. He'll be right on her tail and she'll do a dig route. And now he's 20 yards away from her because he's going this way and she's already cutting the other direction. So maybe he was close. Now we're way back to having to play catch up. I think when you look at, uh, you know, various feds over the years, Federal Reserve presidents over the years, I, I think there is enough evidence that the, the Fed is always behind the curve, you know, and perhaps you could argue that Jay Powell is way behind the curve. But I think the Fed takes its cue from the market uh, when it makes its uh, decisions. Um, so th- this time around, you know, one of the, I guess, surprises uh, has been that inflation, as you said, has reared its you know ugly head, and not just your standard one or two percent inflation. Now we are talking eight percent, eight and a half percent. Granted, there are signs that it it seems to be moderating and peaking around here, uh, but this level of inflation has really taken the Fed by surprise because when when the Fed was doing their models and when they were setting interest rates, they assumed that inflation could be a little high. In fact, they they even wanted inflation to be higher than their standard 2-3% because they figured that if inflation starts ticking up a little bit, then they can start, you know, uh, tightening and start raising interest rates. But inflation, instead of going from 2% to 3%, which by itself is a pretty big jump when you think about the percentage terms. It's gone, right. you know, all the way to eight and a half percent. Now, the the tricky part about inflation, there are two types. I guess there are two drivers of inflation. One is what you would call demand drivers, and then the other is supply drivers. Now, the Fed is much better at controlling inflation if it is purely driven by demand. Where say if unemployment is low and people are just going out and buying things. The Fed can raise rates, uh, tighten policy, and you know inflation will come under control. Now, inflation when inflation is driven by supply factors, which is the case right now, it's much harder. If there is a shortage of crude oil, there's nothing the Fed can do to ameliorate that. If there is a shortage of commodities, the Fed can't do much. If goods are just not coming into the country because of supply chain issues, there's nothing that the Fed can do. Well, can't they... By raising rates, uh, begin to push the economy into a slowdown, yes. which would then moderate the demand for things like crude oil and other other types of uh, uh, goods and services. Yes, they can, and and it will uh, moderate demand to to some extent, but it's not addressing the core of the issue, uh, the crux of the problem, because uh, the cause is more 
supply driven. The the Fed can do that. Um and that's what it's hoping to do now where uh, right. they, they have you know they indicated that they are going to raise rates they are going to take inflation seriously they just finished their last meeting on wednesday and uh, the market seemed to be a little relieved that the fed wasn't going to be as aggressive and it rallied on wednesday but thursday and friday again it pulled back and when you look at what long term interest rates have done the yield on the 10 year is today at 3.12% Uh, and the yield on the thirty-year is three point two two percent. So interest rates have kept going up. So this time around, the stock market is dropping, but at the same time, the bond market is not uh, acted as a safe haven as it usually does. So right. So there's really no place to hide. Uh, except This is, those two things are similar to what went on in the early eighties. Right. You had rising interest rates and a dropping stock market. Rising interest rates means falling bond values the value of a bond always performs directly inversely to the level of interest rates i.e. the cost of money right it's always a, and so if if interest rates are going higher bond prices are always going lower so if you own bonds you're getting here you're in pain because the value of your bonds are dropping right So I think the bond market is trying to find uh you know the right level of interest rates it, it's trying to predict what longer term yes granted inflation is high right now but is right. it going to be this high you know a few years from now over the next 10 years what is the rate of inflation going to be and the bond market is trying to find that level and unfortunately that there is no easy way uh, the bond market is also relying on on data to figure out uh what long term uh, inflation is going to be um i think one of the the difficulties is that um you know we are in an environment where uh equity prices as a result of extremely low inflation were already trading trading at elevated valuations so now you know as interest rates go up even the stock market is trying to figure out what is uh, the right level of uh, interest rates and how exactly to set valuations so when you look at tech stocks for example where there is no current income they have seen a much bigger hit than stocks that pay dividends for example and that's just because the valuation of tech stocks was set based on in- interest rates being very low and all of a sudden the market is realizing that interest rates are perhaps not going to remain as low as they have been So one of the things we've discussed in our investment meetings is the idea that all investing is driven or at least involves the concept of duration D U R A T I O N and basically duration is the idea of when you will get a return of principal and if your investment pays a current dividend i.e. pays cash to you as you hold it it shortens your duration right if you have an investment that doesn't pay cash dividends i.e. a uh, a non dividend paying stock maybe a growth stock or just something that doesn't pay dividends it lengthens your duration now in some markets duration is rewarded 
In others, it's penalized. We are now in a market in which it's being penalized. Longer duration assets of any kind are getting hammered. Other than real estate, we don't know if that's going to roll over at some point. Now, if you can get your arms around what the cost of money is going to be long-term, that is the cost to borrow money. For 10 years, for the Treasury, right now it's 3.11. That's their cost of money. And then that's considered the risk-free cost of money. Everything in the private sector, you got to add to that to get what a risk-adjusted cost of money should be. So Warren Buffett typically says, I take the risk-free rate of return and add 3 4 5%, 4 or 5% to it. So we're looking at either 7 or 8% what you need, given that that cost of money will stay where it is or go lower. Now, it's anybody's guess. But we have to understand what will higher energy costs and higher interest rates do to the economy. Sometimes the whole economy doesn't have to roll over. It's just the marginal buyers. The people, you've got a supply of houses out there. And it's driven, a lot of it's driven by cash. People selling houses in California, buying houses in Arizona and everywhere else in the world. At some point, that supply of people who can sell their house for a big profit in California and move to Nashville is going to exhaust itself. There's not going to be any more of those. Those are the one percenters to begin with. Now, in a state of... 39 million people or how many are in California? That's still a lot, three or 400,000 people, but it's not everybody. That's going to all, that trade's going to get done. And who they're going to sell their houses to, I don't know. But, you know, there's going to come a point where at the margin, so then every other house buy is going to be somebody that's got to borrow money for 30 years. And so he or she looks at, instead of, Two and a half percent on the long-term mortgage is now five and a quarter. So I'm looking at borrowing three or four hundred thousand dollars. That just made my monthly payment go up by five, six hundred bucks or more, and that's a deal killer for me. That person will then say, "I can't buy that house." When the house begins to back up in price because the buyers go away, you begin to get people that that are going to. You have to lower the prices on houses. Oil prices. You're producing, I don't know, 17 million barrels a day to meet world demand. All that has to happen is get the the oil price to a point where 1% of those people say, I ain't buying any gas today. Now, you know, what did we have four or five years ago? We had oil stacked up in tankers because they, you know, there was, it was like you couldn't turn the spigot off. 
You can't just go in and say to the oil field, quit pumping today. It's not how an oil well works. It gets primed and then it's set there and it pumps for 40 years. You don't turn it off because it'll keep spurting out. There, there will come a point where the marginal buyers will say, I'm not buying it. And the next thing you know, you're going to look and one day the market's down 8% and tomorrow it's down 7% because the, the, that marginal demand will go away. And that's the same thing with stocks. They reprice every stock in the market based on the last trade. It could have been 100 shares that was down 3% and everybody else is down 3%. But it can turn the other way also if you get a clear sign that, you know, we're not going to have higher interest rates because everybody's starting to say no. And so this is where I think it could actually be possible that a recession could be good for the market because it begins to moderate interest rates. It begins to moderate oil prices. That's good for the economy. That's good for the consumer. And then you find stocks that will continue to produce earnings in a lower interest rate, lower profits environment. And that's where you're going to make some money. Right. And and that's absolutely true. And recessions are, you know, they can be painful, uh, but generally they are good for the market because they are a corrective mechanism. You know, they they put an end to excesses, uh, excessive, including excessive speculation, which we saw a lot of last year. Um, so, once a recession hits, that's when the you know that's when, as Warren Buffett says, you know, you know who is really swimming naked. And that's when you figure out which companies are actually good companies, and uh, uh, you know you invest in those. And we saw something similar in the oil and gas. When sector. I'm swimming naked, I'm always <laughs> underwater. <laughs> well, when when the tide. Let's uh, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, just saying. Yeah. So, and that's exactly what we saw in the oil and gas sector. You know, in 2014 which was really the the peak of uh, shale production. There were all these small companies that got into the, into the game. Uh, and uh, Money was cheap. Money Liquidity was, cheap. was there for people. Yes. And a lot of them are bankrupt today. And the ones that are surviving are extremely well-run companies with great balance sheets. Uh, so, and that's, invariably, that's what will happen with the rest of the market uh, if we do, you know, go into a recession. Right. And the other thing is that, and we talked about this, and we can talk about it a little more in the second hour. As I explained to people, what I really saw when we went to Europe, and I've seen it before, but I really saw it there, was that the multinational companies, the ones that operated in every country in the world, like a Nestle, their currency is not money. Their currency is goods and services and products. And, and they figure out Coca-Cola the same way. They figure out how to sell their product in any local environment with any currency and make a profit. In other words, but the fact that they're getting paid in currency is incidental. It's not the main thing. The main, because they've got money in every kind of currency in the world at any given time. They don't repatriate 
they can't repatriate all of it back into dollars to meet their earnings. They, they have to translate, and I don't know how they do it, quite frankly. But they're going to have all these currencies, and all that is is an indication that people still want to buy their product. At the end of the day, that person wants a Coca-Cola or a Nescafe rather than they want $5 or $0.25 cents in their pocket. Right. They're willing to make that transaction. This is the genius of the big companies and business in general, but you see it in a way in the larger companies that you don't see it with the smaller ones because they have multiple platforms throughout the world selling multiple products at multiple profit margins, and they figure out how to do it. Right. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's not the work of one person. It's a very decentralized process. The good companies give a lot of power to the people out on the margins. Right. All right, that's my cue. We need to go to a break. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show with the Darsh Mashrew. We're here to educate, guide, and empower you. And I think the first half of the hour was packed with nuggets of information on navigating this inflation environment and interest rates and all the things in between. We'll be back in just a few minutes. What about the podcast and all that? (laughs) <laughs> oh, my goodness. If you want to hear more of the Tom Dupree Show, go to DupreeFinancial.com under the blog and radio tab. You can always find more podcasts there if you want to hear more or just the latest episode. We're going to go to a break without any more from the peanut gallery. You're listening to the Tom Dupree Show. We'll be right back. The paper said it all. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us this week, Darsh Mashrew, our host, Tom Dupree, in this half of the hour. We want to help you navigate this crazy up and down market. The most important thing you can do is to really look inside and under the hood of companies, which is what we really enjoy doing at Dupree Financial Group. Yes, sir. Ma'am. So this is obviously Fleetwood Mac. It's 
actually, I had no idea. This was from their 14th album. Now, when they started, they were way different than what they became. They were kind of a blues, almost in the Long John Daltrey, kind of London blues kind of thing. Really okay, but not great. And they were able to, with the addition of the lady singers, they were at Christy McVie and Lindsey Buckingham, they really morphed their sound into something that could be monetized. Right. And that's what good corporations do. I mean, you know, Fleetwood Mac, you have to almost consider them a corporation. Uh, Fleetwood Mac is actually the first concert I ever went to. It was in the year uh, 2000, and they came to my hometown of Bangalore, and I, I went to that concert. Yeah. How was it? Do you remember it? It was, it was great. Yeah, I remember. Did you go with your brother? I went with a friend of mine uh, who, uh, who is an American. Yeah. Uh, he lives in Cincinnati. And uh, I went to an international school, so we had a few Americans in the school, and uh, the two of us went to the concert. Well, I was never a big Fleetwood Mac fan uh per se there was a guy trying to think what his name was peter green guitarist sort of like a richard thompson type guy and i think he might have played with them early and you know that i put them in the category with uh, people like john mayall and you know british blues singers the sort of sub eric clapton type uh everything you know that i didn't really care about with english singers that's kind of the category they were in but they figured out how to develop what i would call a distinctly american sound and uh and and that's what sells right you know top 40ish type music and they just were great at marketing so let's talk a little bit about corporations that do this and one of which is a company called nestle now i'm not trying to tout nestle stock you can buy it as an adr there is no three three letter symbol for nestle it's still otc but it's a corporation that Everybody, the what's the first thing you think of when you hear the word Nestle? Chocolate. That's it. I mean, okay, Nestle's Quick. Remember Nestle's Quick? It's Nestle Quick. Yeah, it was chocolate milk. Nesquik. Yeah, Nesquik. When you think of Nestle, you think of chocolate. That's all you think of. That's all I think of. Switzerland is known for chocolate. The corporate headquarters of Nestle is in a place called Vivi. It's about seven miles up the lake, Lake Geneva, from Lausanne. When you're sitting in the Nestle headquarters, you're looking across at uh what's the spring over there that were the this on the french side um that's they also produce water over there it's owned by group denon right um evian yeah so you're you're sitting in the nestle's headquarters 
which is the biggest bottled water producer in the world, you're looking 11 miles across the lake at Evian, which is number two, owned by Group Danon. Interesting. Nestle may sell chocolate still, but that is by and far, by and large, not their biggest business. Number one is bottled water. Number two is coffee. Those are the things that they do. This is a company that figured out what they could do, what they could fit themselves into based on what they were. And they've done that. And uh, they operate in how many countries do we have in the world? 187. They operate in all 187 of them, including the ones that were run by terrorists and that all the other people had left. Nestle still goes there, and they probably make more money there than, than some places. It's fascinating. This is, you know, so you go, I mean, I'm just saying my take on it. Yeah, so I mean, Nestle is, uh, you know, as you said, a truly uh, global company because they operate pretty much everywhere. And uh, they have a long uh, history of operating in many of these countries, even before they were countries, you know, or they were parts of other countries. Um, so um, they have figured out how to, uh, you know, adapt to the local market because every market has its own, you know, uh, idiosyncrasies or you know differences and uh, they cater to the tastes of the local market so when i travel like when i've traveled through asia you know uh, you see a lot of uh, nestle coffee in asia because there's a big culture of instant coffee unlike here in the u.s where you get these sachets and the sachet has a little coffee sugar and uh, cream and you just pour it in hot pour hot water over it uh, and that's a big nestle product there's also uh, noodles a brand called maggie which is very common in asia which is owned by nestle uh in fact when we went there there, there was some controversy going on regarding that brand but uh, it's since been resolved um so nestle because they operate in smaller countries poorer countries has been accused at times of taking advantage of that one of which was a well-known incident involving baby formula right yeah, that happened. It was a while ago. It's been yeah, fifteen years or yeah. more. And uh, and uh, yeah, and I, I guess uh, and that that's a part of it. You know, every major company, especially one that deals with food, there are bound to be uh, you know uh, incidents. Uh, but the company dealt with it. I can't remember what the exact outcome of that case was, but uh, they dealt with it either they changed the product or uh, they re- recalled that product um, and uh, they they moved on um, but <coughs> w- what is very interesting is that these companies they you know there's a term in uh, diplomacy it's called track to diplomacy where it's not governments that are dealing with uh, other governments but companies that are interacting with people on the ground and companies in other countries and there's a a lot of diplomacy that goes on that way Uh, and there's obviously you know people to people interaction and uh, people travel 
even when we went to the Nestle headquarters, there were people from all over the world. It looked like going into uh, the UN or something. Right. It had f- flags from everywhere. Right. And, uh, you know, you had people sitting in the lobby that were from South America and, and, and different places in the world. Right. And then another thing that a company like Nestle does is that they acquire local brands in various countries. So sometimes it's easier to, uh, instead of introducing your own existing brand, which the local market may not have, you know, uh, a taste for, you just acquire a local brand uh, and then introduce your own best practices. Uh, so Nestle does a lot of that uh, also. Um, and as you said earlier, you know, they deal with various currencies. It's not just one currency. Um, and I remember they were talking to us about uh, Venezuela because that was, uh, you know, there was some serious issues going on at that point. They had not pulled out of Venezuela. They had not pulled out, yes, even though inflation was rampant. Uh but they had still figured out a way because even if inflation is very high, you know, if uh, you know if people are getting paid, you know, more money, then they can still, you know, uh, buy that product. Um, so, um, and uh, and of course, there are some people who cannot. But uh, they they had figured out a way to stay there, and I, I don't know what happened since then. I'll have to follow up. But they. Uh, they stayed there because they had seen a similar situation in the past. It may not have been in Venezuela, it may have been in another country, but they they knew how exactly to operate in that environment and uh, they managed to uh, stay open. Um, so w- one of the consequences of doing that is that even people in those countries, they have a lasting memory you know, of uh, of these brands that they grew up with that were there even when times were difficult. So Nestle aspires to be one of those companies that, that is just, you know, a brand that people love. Yeah, and truly that goes beyond just money. Now, there are things uh, in the economy that... Um, only produce money and they don't really produce a product or any particular service. Um, and then some of those services are questionable in terms of um, their, their value. So we'll talk about another one that we went to see over there. And this gets into status. We visited the uh, headquarters of BMW. Now, BMW uh, certainly would be perceived as a premium brand, Uh, the BMW automobile and its engineering is certainly as good as anything you'll find in the world. But they also owned uh, two other things. Um, They owned Rolls-Royce. Do they own Bentley also, or, or is that a separate... Uh, I think it's just Rolls-Royce, Yeah, and they own Mini. They own the Mini, the Mini Coopers. So that's their sort of less-than-premium brand. But one of the things that uh, I was struck by upon visiting their headquarters, it was like going into a museum. It was... Um, everything was architecturally so slick, even the bathroom was just 
like going into a eight series car. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, uh, sink and, and the whole thing made out of this chrome. It was beautiful. And, um, one of the things that we realized about BMW, they were selling a lot of them in China because you had an aspiring class of people in China that were making quite a bit of money and that wanted to have a BMW. The other thing is, uh, they, uh, had a wonderful, uh, very profitable, maybe even more profitable than the manufacturing side. They had a finance arm, very large, basically a bank that made car loans. And, um, it was, a, it, it did really well. It had gotten hit a little bit in 08, 09, I think. There were some defaults. And car prices dropped some in there. But the bottom line is that that thing had a wonderfully clean book of business, the finance side of it. And it was big, $700 billion. or I don't, I don't know what the number was. It was a massive number of car loans, which they earned a nice spread on. And they understand the collateral, which is a BMW automobile. Great business. I loved their business plan. It's a car company, yes. But I thought they did a great job. Yes, and what was interesting was that uh, the defaults on their loan book was not as bad as some of the other companies. And and the reason for that was that they their underwriting standards were pretty strong, that people who were buying these BMWs you know, also tended to have good, you know, credit. Uh, so uh, the default rate, despite the financial crisis, I remember talking about this, was still manageable. Uh, and their balance sheet, you know, basically was debt-free uh, when you look at just the, the car uh, part of it. Uh, they did have some problems when the market got soft on the turnbacks on the leases. Right. The, 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 the value of the car that got turned back was a little lower than what they thought it was going to be at one point right uh now they're probably having the other the opposite problem Flip side. <laughs> yeah uh so um yeah also a great company also a global company uh obviously bmw rolls royce even mini is not a cheap car really uh they, they are what you would call luxury cars um and uh, they are, as you said, very aspirational, uh, well, not just in China. I mean, even here in the U.S., perhaps to some extent, as you get to the higher levels of BMW, they are expensive and aspirational cars. Um, they are well-engineered, well-made products uh, that have a long history. And uh, they also, like you know, Nestle, uh, have figured out the dynamics of various markets. Oftentimes, they make the cars. The cars are not necessarily made in Germany just because the company is headquartered there. They make the cars in the countries that they sell them to or they make the cars in a, country, a third, part, third country and then export them to various uh, other countries. So um, it, it's a tremendous uh, logistical uh, undertaking uh, and, uh, you know, just, just a great company. Yeah, and when you talk about aspirational brands, you're talking about status symbol type brands. Right. Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, LVMH, massive company based in France 
they, you know, they sell Louis Vuitton uh, purses and, 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 you know, uh, luggage and stuff. And then uh, you got another one. I, I'm sure Tiffany would be considered an aspirational brand. These are things, these are companies that produce these things that uh, some folks would regard as uh, frivolous. Others regard it as a necessity, um, you know, and it, it depends upon how you look at things. One other that we uh, went to see on another trip, the one we went when we went to Norway, I'll say it, talk about it briefly, was a company called Orkla based in Oslo. In some ways, it was the Norwegian version of Procter & Gamble, but it had a really interesting history. Right. So Orkla uh, also, it was interesting because, uh, and again, this was, I guess, because of their legacy businesses, but it wasn't just so. It was primarily a food company. They owned various brands, and Asia was their biggest market. Uh, but they also owned certain legacy businesses. They owned uh, Norsk uh, Hydro, which was like a hydroelectric deal. Then they owned something else. Paint brushes or, or pa yes. some kind of painting supplies. Right. Um, but primarily a food brand. And I, I think their plan uh, was that over time they were, you know, going to divest some of these businesses that weren't really, uh, you know. Peter Moeller, the people yes. that produce Carlson Fish Oil. Uh, right. they, all their brands were very interesting brands. I mean, they they made these little uh uh, things like uh, TV, like uh, we used to call them TV dinners. These are kind of meals that could be uh, uh, prepared quickly, and a lot of people in India ate those, I think. Uh, yes. So I remember they had acquired a big company in India called uh, MTR, uh, which is also from my hometown. Uh, so, in fact, I knew someone who worked for Orkla in India. Um, what was interesting about them was that they figured out, you know, the food business, highly competitive. There are a few major players, but they had figured out their, you know, niche. They were primarily in uh, the Scandinavian countries, some in other European countries, but then uh, they had, you know, they acquired certain brands in, a in uh, Asia, which were dominant brands in, in that region. So they weren't operating like, a Nestle, where they were in all these countries, they they were in certain countries uh, where they felt that they could compete against someone like Nestle. Um, so the uh, we're going to have to go in a second, but one I would say the common denominator of a lot of those companies was trust. Right? Can you trust this brand? Is it? Sorry, you all. Is it a good brand? Can it be trusted to provide? quality products right. and and sort of um, always be relied upon it's a lady I used to know she says I'll buy Hellman's mayonnaise no matter what the price is which used to be sold by a company called CPC anyway um, alright we gotta jump Tom that's why I'm no, sitting I'm, I'm here gonna say, we gotta go. say you've been listening to the Tom Dupree show <laughs> and I was gonna radio. say nothing on this show you've heard is a recommendation to buy or sell Securities consult a professional since we talked about companies. 
It was just kind of a look under the hood, an example of what we look for when we're evaluating. You've been listening to The Tom Dupree Show. We'll talk to you next week.